because God's given me what I always call an idiosyncratic gift, and I mean that sincerely. And it's purely a gift. I, I never aimed for this. It took me a long time to realize I had it. It's to bring together a whole bunch of fields. Now my big field is theology, of course, but to make theology something that lives and something that's real. We're extremely excited to share with you a very special interview with one of our favorite authors and teachers. For decades, Father Rohr has led people around the world into a deeper and more sacred understanding of who they are. Despite great success with his talks and speaking engagements, Richard still leads the humble life of a friar, upholding his vow of celibacy, poverty, and service to his community as a Franciscan priest. We realize that our listener base is very diverse and that all may not share a single faith perspective, but we want to share this conversation with you anyway. We feel that these words Richard is speaking have value to anyone who wishes to live a life of authenticity and self-awareness. Hope you enjoy. If we kind of start off with, tell us about where we are right now in the Center for Contemplation and Action. Oh, here. Well, the Center, uh, we have almost 25 staff between these two buildings. Uh, I never thought it would get this big or this dedicated to getting this message out. You know, it's just I'm so humbled by it, so honored by it. But we're in a really good place. Right next door, they're having a meeting. Frank, I, I turned 73 a couple days ago. so Happy birthday. You know, and they're, uh, <laughs> I mean, they're planning for my demise, which, <laughs> which they have to, you know, to be responsible. So they're, they're working right in the next room now on the strategic plan with great detail. If what I'm saying has any solidity or, or depth or tradition or traction to it, uh, you know, how can we continue it after Richard's gone? Following a lifetime of traveling, preaching, and serving vulnerable communities, in 1986, Richard founded the Center for Contemplation and Action in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where he now lives and teaches. It's here where he holds his daily teaching seminars, as well as leads a graduate study program on faith, contemplation, and personal development. But we're in a good place, uh, where we're not uh, preoccupied with surviving, we're solid enough, secure mm -hmm. enough, which is really nice when yeah. you don't have to worry that you can support the staff. Um, so we can get to more, what should I say, discreet, long-lasting issues instead of survival issues. Sure. Yeah. So for mm -hmm. those who may not understand what the center is mm -hmm. about, like what yeah. is your aim? What is what is? Well, we're we're an education and transformational center. Those sound like big words, I'm sure. But we had to recognize we're not a hands-on service place of a soup kitchen or something like that. But we sure hope we're giving the spirituality to people to do things like that, you know? And because I'm in this wonderfully free position, where I'm still, believe it or not, a priest in good standing in the church, uh, and people, but I think that's because the bishops, the powers that be, they know what I'm saying is the gospel. They've got to know it. And I'm just freer to say it. Because I'm not under the whole control of the system. Sure. And now, because of my age again, I guess I have a certain seniority that I can get away with saying these things and they don't think I'm just a rebel or something like that. One of your gifts, I feel, is you're able to take these complex issues of 
let me say, humanity, spirituality, faith, and put it in a context that maybe those who maybe look at Christians as people who put their brains up on the shelf um, as something that could be a value. Um, And so that's really, really kind of where we're hoping to dig into today a bit. Um, So what would be your first response to, you know, kind of an audience like that? Like, what would you, how would you want to approach that? You know, the first thing that comes to mind, and you've probably heard me say this, I just have about 10 major themes and they keep coming back. <laughs> but one of them is that truth is one. If it's true, it's true, it's true, it's true. And, and science is going to come at it at one level, philosophy at another, theology at another, politics at another, you know. Mm-hmm. And we all start touching the same elephant from, from different angles, you know. So uh, what I, I like to do is say that to people that, I'm probably going to have, you know, f- to the secular humanist or mm-hmm. uh, whatever mind, uh, I'm going to sound too Christian or even too Catholic. But uh, the good thing about that is actually the form of Catholicism I was taught was true to its name. As you've probably been told, the word Catholic means universal. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the what the Franciscans trained me to be, a universal man. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I still was trained in classic... Orthodox Catholic theology and philosophy, but not to hold me in that box, but to give me the language and the self-confidence to understand all the other boxes too, to understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I guess thanks for letting me say that, because um, some people are, are understandably, and I mean this, so put off by Christianity and so wounded by Christianity that as soon as they hear you use a a Christian lace term, they just turn you off, you know. And I want to talk, again, if it's true, it's true everywhere. I want to find universal truth that applies to everybody. While using, uh, you got to start somewhere, you know. I admit I'm formed in Western thinking and Western philosophy and Mm -hmm. even Christian philosophy. So um, I hope that helps. But honestly, and you've apparently discovered this already, I'm not an academic. I know I might sound like I am, but I'm not. <laughs> I'm, a, <laughs> I'm a popularizer who I, God just gave me enough smarts to understand the highly intelligent people partially, right. or a little bit, enough to try to bring them down to earth. Hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> well, talking about your themes, I think <clears throat> there are several that, that I, I know we want to dig into, but... When, when we're looking at the, the, and I hope I'm not simplifying uh, your approach on this too much when it comes to no, process, sure. but one of the things that we'd love to dig into, and I don't know what your term for it is, but you talk about the three stages, the construction, deconstruction, or reconstruction, if I have that right. Yes. Um, now I'm using order, disorder, reorder. Okay. That's today's meditation, in okay. fact, I think. But there, it's the same. Mm-hmm. So um, can you... You know, kind of give the yeah. b- the bird's eye view on that. You know, what gave me the confidence to think that way, it was uh, Walter Brueggemann's Old Testament studies, where he takes the, the Hebrew scriptures and he divides them into three major sections. The Torah, the law, Leviticus, Numbers, you know, a lot of legalism, ritualism, but a lot of brilliance too, you know. Mm-hmm. Then the prophets the birth of self-critical thinking, and then he goes to the what he calls the wisdom literature, you know, the book of Job, mm-hmm. the Psalms, and the Ecclesiastes, and so forth. And he says, you've got to 
that that mirrors the evolution of consciousness. And I said, Eureka, that makes total sense to me. At first you need a foundational appreciation for order. Mm -hmm. And what I say is that yesterday or today's meditation, the difficulty, let's say you're how old? 24. Yeah, of Will's generation. Now you don't seem to be an example of it, but much of your generation grew up in disorder. Mm -hmm. You know, with a culture falling apart, politics abysmal, mm -hmm. uh, a church falling apart. And uh, I was lucky enough in my generation to grow up where we had order to start with. Now, admittedly, it was too conservative, it was too cut off from the rest of the world and mm -hmm. so forth. But it's still, all things being equal, the, the easiest place to start. Mm -hmm. When you have a little paper bag to beat your way out of. Right. But when you start with, there's no boundaries whatsoever. It's just, it's incumbent upon me, which is the pre way the present high school student or college, I have to figure it all out. No wonder we have so much mental illness, really. Mm -hmm. And emotional illness, you can't do that. You can't. And that's why, you know, Fiddler on the Roof, tradition. Why every culture really till the Enlightenment was traditional. Mm -hmm. That this is the way we do it, this is what we believe. Uh, now, the genius that the Jewish scriptures, which we call the Old Testament, brought is this unique section called the Prophets. And the fact that those were not excluded from their scriptures, but were included, is to the glory of the Jewish people. Because mm -hmm. most of the writings of the prophets are telling the Jewish people they're phonies and they're hypocrites. And, and that they would include those in their sacred texts is just phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what we did, Jews and Christians both, we, they, we all have them in the Bible, but no one reads them. Because <laughs> we, we don't understand critical thinking, do you see? Yeah. So without critical thinking, if you just stay in order, it always becomes idolatrous, self-serving, blindness. Like I grew up in 1940s, 50s, Kansas. I mean, I, we were all so happy, so naive. For some reason when you say that, I picture like black and white and like Superman. <laughs> <where you're laughs> the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, I mean, it's just... I didn't know divorce in my huge family on both sides. Right. Everything was stable, 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 you know? Uh, we didn't know a gay person. I'm sure they were there, mm -hmm. but we they didn't have the freedom to come out. Sure. So it was a very ordered world, but created by a whole bunch of denial mm -hmm. and not paying attention, to use your word. Mm -hmm. So to keep growing, you've got to move into the second stage, disorder. So before we go to disorder, so just to kind of break it down maybe a little more simply if I could. Please. So um, the, the order, the first stage, is is, is it fair to say that um, for those who are, are perhaps more conservative, they, they, they stay there. They keep constructing a world that All makes sense to, to them? All evidence to the contrary. Okay. All evidence to the contrary. Okay. They, they end up being huge deniers of reality. Forgive me for being so blatant. But, no, uh, no, it's good. You know, it, it's just, it doesn't have anything to do with truth anymore. Okay. It's, it's okay for a while, till you're about 20, to live inside of this box of self-created, idealistic truth. You know, that, that is always self-serving. My country's the best, my race is the best, my gender's the best, my, mm -hmm. my religion's the best. It, it makes you happy. Mm -hmm. you're, you're very happy in that world. You really are. But you have to face disorder. Now, that's what I'm talking about, falling upward. Mm -hmm. You know, that your game has to fall apart. 
what uh, Thomas Merton calls your private salvation project. Your private salvation project has to disappoint you. Now, the trouble is, most academics, liberals, progressives, and, and um, sophisticated people, they get trapped in the second box. And, and particularly the young people today. They're born in the second box. Unless they come from an Amish family or an evangelical family in Mississippi that doesn't talk to anybody outside of their circle, mm -hmm. you can get away with it. But if you want to meet the real world, your certitudes will quickly fall apart. You know, mm -hmm. that only white people are virtuous and black people are bad. Well, just meet a few black people. Right. <laughs> or a few more white people and you'll know that's a lie. <laughs> but this is what, I mean, the, the sinfulness of it is, if I can use that word, that we now live with this kind of access to truth and information. And we still, as we're seeing in the present election, have a high percentage of people who choose to stay in the first box because it's much more comfortable. Mm -hmm. Because they're used to constructing what they think is they reality. They construct yeah. their reality, which is always self-referential. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. egocentric. Now that's why Jesus would say the self has to die. Because if you keep yourself as the reference point to anything, mm -hmm. I'm not the center of the world, none of us are. Uh, that's what religion meant at its best. There was another center and it wasn't us. You know? mm -hmm. If you don't undergo that transformation, um, you remain very stupid. I don't know what else to say, very yeah. stupid. And that's much of our country. Now the richer you are and the more comfortable you are, the longer you can sustain yourself there. See the poor, any who are marginalized or persecuted, they see real quickly the world is in order. Do you understand? Mm -hmm. Right. Real early, they learn things aren't as they should be. But you almost have to be a, a minority in some sense to, to experience that. Mm -hmm. So that's why you hear me say that the scriptures always make the minority group the, the victors. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and the, the majority is almost always wrong. In fact, in Luke's Gospel, every time the word crowds is used, it's wrong. The crowds never get it. It's the individual, you know, who, who undergoes transformation and gets it. Now, so that the sequencing is important. You can't skip over disorder. You have to go through it to get to reorder. But now, you include both the first and the second. You, you include what was good about order. So I haven't thrown out my Catholic conservative beginnings. It might sound like it, but I really haven't, you know? That's, I, I'm grounded there. I, don't, I hope I haven't thrown out the baby with the bathwater. What was essential, mm -hmm. eternally true, and good, I hold on to. I see many evangelicals do the same thing. Uh, and then uh, I faced starting in the 60s, all the disorder of the 70s and the 80s, and traveling around the world teaching helped me see that. Mm -hmm. And then if you can learn what was good about order, integrate what is necessarily learned in disorder, you have the beginnings of what in Christian language we'd call the resurrected life, mm -hmm. where it's not by eliminating problems or eliminating people who are different, which is what order wants to do. Mm -hmm. But neither do you jump on the bandwagon of cynicism mm -hmm. and dismissal, which we see so much of liberal America in today. We're just, 
you know, everything's stupid, everything's phony, everything's. Because I, I wanted to yeah. comment on that really because you're talking about the, the, you know, the kind of sort of the first area, first box for yeah. like Reddit terms. And for those who you said are born into the second phase or, yes. or the rear, it seems equally as dangerous if you continually question everything forever. In fact, it's a much harder cyclical, way to grow up. Right? Much mm -hmm. harder way to grow up. You have to grow up backwards. And what they do, I was jail chaplain here for 14 years. They spent their first 21 years on drug, sex, and rock and roll. No mm -hmm. boundaries, no identity, no law. And I've all created terrible problems for their life. Now their need for order is so desperate that what they do, and I'm going to speak from the theological perspective, they go back and buy fundamentalist rigid religion hmm. of absolute black and whites, absolute I know who's going to heaven and who's going to hell, mm -hmm. and the last state of the house is worse than the first, to quote Jesus. Hmm. So we're, this is what we're seeing in our culture now. Most people under 35 have been formed in the disorder box. And their, their desperate, blessed rage for order, as one poet called it, uh, backfires, and they need order so badly. I don't know if you've worked in the recovery community at all, but you see this in a lot of alcoholics mm -hmm. or recovering alcoholics. They'll, they'll actually often be black and white thinkers, even though they've stopped drinking. Do you understand? Yeah. Many people who are in recovery are not that easy to talk to because they'll have such absolute opinions on things, you know? And it's because they're trying to construct a world that... They realize they... what disorder led them to. Hmm. So I'm sure God totally understands it. But I'm not going back there again. I need a few boundary markers. Hmm. And yeah. they become so strict on the boundary markers that it becomes its own kind of blindness. Hmm. Much of Richard's teaching is focused on a concept he calls non-dualism which is essentially the rejection of the notion that all complexity in our reality must be understood as being in opposition to something else. This naturally leads us to conclude that one side is then better or morally superior to the other. A great example of this is just looking at our political system. The normal way the human mind works, and we can now prove this with, you know, putting little electrodes up here, uh, is the mind is a binary system uh, that knows things by comparison with something else. So when your little kids were two-year-olds, uh, they first hear the word short. The only way they can understand the word short is if they already have in position the word tall. Right? Mm -hmm. And okay, I got it. I got what those two words mean. That's the way all ideas form in the mind. Now, that's normally totally adequate for the first 15 years of life or so. You don't need much more subtlety than that. Mm -hmm. Even though most of us are somewhere in between tall or short, mm -hmm. but for normal conversation, dualistic, either or thinking uh, is adequate. Now it gets worse than this. So you can't understand cold if you don't understand hot, that's that right. sort of thing. That's right. yeah. okay. Here's, if you watch your mind, as soon as you make this split between two, whatever it might be, male, female, Democrat, Republican, Catholic, Protestant, it's everywhere. It's the only game in town. Uh, you immediately are, and this is your ego at work, take sides. Hmm. And you want to prove that one side is better than another. 
And then, of course, you always happen to be on that side. <laughs> There's the egocentricity of it again. So what you're doing in contemplation is you resist that impulse and you stop eliminating what is mysterious, problematic, or threatening to you. Now, if you watch your normal thinking, we all do it. I do it too. If it's threatening, new, mysterious, uh, I don't know if I like that. You know, how could you not? Mm -hmm. How could you not? So you have to train your mind in not splitting the moments as they come towards you. It is what it is what it is. I don't have to find out if she's lesbian or if she's Christian. She's just a woman. Mm -hmm. She's an image of God. Do you understand? Mm -hmm. So get over all your prejudices. Just image of God standing in front of me. I don't care what her sexual orientation is. I don't care if she's Chinese. Do you understand? Yeah. She deserves mm -hmm. the equal same respect. That's why this has so many theological implications. You really much of Jesus' teaching, like, you really can't love your enemies with a dualistic mind, you can't. So we've told Christians to love their enemies. Most of them are physiologically incapable of it. Do you understand? Mm -hmm. Incapable of it. And But we go ahead pretending we do. I mean, the recent election results show you that Christians are just as prejudiced as pretty much everybody else. Mm -hmm. It's a big illusion. Mm -hmm. They have this idea, I'm higher-minded, but they're not. Yeah. When it comes to it, they will vote for their own security, their own status, their own superiority, uh, mm -hmm. like pretty much like everybody else. But I'm not saying that to put them down. It, it's my long answer to your question. This is how little of the gospel we can understand with the dualistic mind. Very little of it. Then. The, the Jesus' teaching is what I would call from the second half of life. It's wisdom. It's, it takes the contemplative mind. The contemplative mind is a non-dual mind. So I started to go into it. Where I resist that temptation to divide what I like from what I don't like. And it just, it is what it is, what it is, what it is, what it is. <laughs> and get rid of your commentaries and categorizations and judgments. Once you learn to do that to some degree, I don't know if we're ever perfect at it, but frankly, the first payoff is you're much happier. Mm -hmm. You're much happier. <laughs> the dualistic mind just constantly makes you unhappy because you're always finding things you can't approve of, you don't like, you want to change, you want to dismiss, you want to get rid of. Mm -hmm. yeah. And of course, this comes, as I'm sure you know, even in a marriage and your own mm -hmm. parenting, uh, you want to eliminate all those things you don't like in your son or whatever. It yeah. Be. Mm -hmm. And it's hard because it seems like labels are how the world goes around. Uh, uh, I'm glad you used the word label because that's what they mean when they say do not judge. They really mean do not label. Hmm. And this resisting to labeling, it'll take you years to uh, do major rewiring up here, but that's the, that's the only way you can see things, I'm going to use religious language, hmm. in God. You're hitting on something that was a crucial part of my mm. deconstruction, I think, is mm. that I would read things in the Bible that I would see as um, conflicting, and it would completely shake mm. my understanding mm. of God being yeah. trustworthy. Yes, um, yes. And particularly in like the grace and works type scenarios, mm. and um, my dualistic mind is so quick to jump to, okay, so can I disregard some things that I believe about God in order to make these other things true. True. Very good self-analysis. Yeah. yeah, the grace and works is another dualistic yeah. split that doesn't work out in reality. Right. And, uh, yeah. and we've wasted 500 years on that. 
And we Catholics were supposedly the works people, and evangelicals were supposedly the faith people. I don't think it's that simple. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 well, it was it, a comfortable, again, self-serving yeah. split. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm, I'm unfairly, you know, labeling this example, but mm -hmm. I think one of the things that came evident to me is when we read scripture, um, especially about Christ with a non-dualistic perspective, as much as we are able to, Very good. Well it expands. Oh, huge. Yeah. Um, it doesn't eliminate your faith. It deepens your faith. Yeah. In, in fact, the basic Christian doctrine that took three centuries to clarify that Jesus is fully human and fully divine cannot be understood with the dualistic mind. Right, because it's both hand. It's both hand, yeah. Uh, the, uh, the, my book on the Trinity that I just finished on Saturday, the Trinity was made to order to destroy your dualistic thinking. Mm. It moves you from the principle of two to th three. is a d dynamic notion, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. just keeps you in the flow. The principle of two is always antagonistic, mm. always. As soon as you divide anything into Gays and straights, you've got to choose one group's right and the other group's wrong. Mm. That's the way the mind works. Mm. Oh, it's taken us so long to see this. Well, it's funny, as we're sitting here talking, I don't know if you're picking this up, but we're in the business of labeling. Mm. Because you're... Well, because we, we tell company stories. We tell their oh. stories brand. And so, oh, you know, I see. Sure. we... We figure out, you know, um, sure. it's a female from 25 mm -hmm. to 45 that, you know, and I know there's there's merits to data. I'm not there, saying it's that's not. it. And it, so don't feel too guilty. We have to do that. But the thing that you two are going to have, you're going to have a place where at five o'clock you can take that hat off and say, is that makes my money during the day, but it doesn't get me to wisdom. Mm -hmm. This isn't reality. <laughs> and you've heard myself on the false self and yeah. the true self. Yeah. It's all false self. But all of our jobs are full self, yeah. you know? Richard is about to go into a topic that is particularly challenging for those of us who are performance-oriented career types. He argues that all of our achievements and accolades are nothing more than ribbons that we place on what he calls our false selves. To start, Richard will describe what the true self is. Is your metaphysical, ontological, theological self that you are objectively in God. Forgive all those big words. Mm -hmm. You can't change it, you can't up it, you can't down it. <laughs> this is what we mean, uh, philosophically speaking, by the infinite love of God. You've got it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, your true self knows that. Now we in Christian language, like John 14 says it in a dozen ways, is called the indwelling spirit. In a lot of their tradition we would have called it the soul. That part of you that knows who it is. Now, very few people live at that level, we got to be honest. Mm -hmm. Because what, what gets us our payoff and our security and our admiration in this world is the false self. As you've heard me say, the false self is not the bad self. Don't make it bad. It's just false. <laughs> in other words, it's psychologically created by your culture, your family, your religion too, I'm afraid, your gender and your occupation. The big one becomes your, your occupation. You know when Jesus tells James and John to leave their father and their, their nets, occupation and family are what trap you the most. As wonderful as family is, but actually, Jesus pretty much deconstructs, we hate to say this, to focus on the family people. There's not a single passage in the New Testament that idealizes the nuclear family. 
not, you can't find it. It's not there, you know. It's always the extended family. It's the big family of God, you know. And uh, when we whittle it all down to mommy, daddy, and children, we haven't got the kingdom of God anymore. We've got glorified narcissism, which, and you've seen this, a lot of people, their whole life is just this little circle, mm -hmm. which after a while you don't have much to give your kids because you're not a very big person yourself. So I just did that little excursus because family and occupation are the biggest seductions into the false self. But you have to do it. It's the order thing. I mean, I went off and went to a seminary, became a Franciscan, became a priest, and got educated, and all those were little hooks to hang my identity on. And they served me well the first years of life. But then the second half of life, I had to let go of all of them. I'm still that, but they don't mean that much. Do you understand? They were yeah. just to get me here. They were just to get me here. Hmm. So... Um, your Which false I think for many is a dangerous stage of life. It is. Because you're like, who am I now? Who am I now? Very yeah. good. Very yeah. good. Yeah. So the, um, the false self is the raw material by which, which fails you. I'm saying the same thing again. Disappoints you. Well, I'm not really a priest. I'm not really... I'm pretty phony Franciscan. I mean, <laughs> you've got to see all your faults, you know, which is the confrontation with the shadow. And you fall through it into your true self. Do you understand? Mm -hmm. It's, you don't eliminate it. I'm still a priest. I'm still a Franciscan. You understand? I'm still all these things, but I've learned not to grasp onto them or take them too seriously or try to give myself status because of them. Most people, however, do because that's all they have. If you don't fall through to the true self, you just keep trying to make another million dollars in your present occupation, you understand? Mm -hmm. Or get your name on more books or whatever your thing is, you know? And you feel that that reformation of Christianity is happening, you've mentioned that. It before. really is at an amazing pace. Mm -hmm. Like, you know those two books that Jossie Bass put out? Mm -hmm. uh, they told me before they stopped doing spiritual books that uh, my single biggest demographic was young evangelical males. Hmm. And uh, I'm going to have a number of groups come here this year of, from that grouping. Uh, they who were the most conservative are getting it, it, proving my very point. You do order right, and a lot of evangelicalism did, believe it or not, it did mm -hmm. order right very mm -hmm. well. Give you a deep love of Jesus, deep loyalty to to being reverent and respectful to people and things like that. Mm -hmm. They were they're most prepared to hold disorder. So when I give them that model, I'm not surprised that it interested you, because it's what you're going through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and yeah. it'll lead you through too. Father, one of the things that we really Richard, call me Richard. Yeah, Richard, one of the things that we really um, care about at Rule Twenty Nine is uh, all of just the family of people that work together. Um, mm -hmm. We look, we want to look at everyone as as um, just wonderful, beautiful individuals that are part of our team. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we wanted to do this year is we're really exploring culture mm -hmm. and understanding culture and how that impacts mm -hmm. our relationships and all that sort of thing. And when I had met you, you'd given me that your your enneagram. Oh, um, book or um, tapes? What did uh, you the, the book? The, the book. book. And um, <clears throat> I actually fought for a while figuring out <laughs> what my number was. Um, and we recently have done that in the office. No kidding! Yeah. Wow. So, so we all know what we are. 
because it, it's now building on meticulous and careful self-observation over centuries. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's not something a uh, product of modern psychology. And the only people who don't believe the anagram, forgive me for being so dualistic, <laughs> <laughs> is that are people who don't know it. Once you know it you know, and you work with it, my God, it's true. Yeah. I believe it more 30 years later than when I first learned it, you know. So it still helps me help people. I just, and we can't prove it scientifically why this is so true. And you probably know we think it goes back to the desert father of Agrius Ponticus, the first roots of it. Now he only had eight passions, as he called them, or what became the capital sins by the seventh century. Um, and then just kept getting refined in different wisdom schools, and then was rediscovered in our lifetime. You know? Now how did he get to the nine? How did we get from eight to nine, do you remember? You know, it's so interesting that most of the people up to the Franciscan Raymond Lull in the 13th century, they always had eight. And the one they were missing was always fear, which ironically we now know is the most common of all. Mm. It's the biggest number is the six. Many of us who teach the Enneagram feel it might be as much as 50% of the human population wow. are fear-based people, mm. which you can see why there's so much anxiety over ISIS or anything. They, they go toward fear like a magnet, and mm. anything that's thre threatening their security. But it, it would prove that point. You can't see what you're not told to pay attention mm -hmm. to. You can't see the air that you breathe when fear is the entire thing your culture is structured around. I mean, look at our military. It just, we never question the military budget. Never, mm -hmm. never. <laughs> billions, billions, billions. No, we need it, we need it, we need it, we need it. But little money for the poor, health care. no, we can't afford it. Yeah. I, doesn't it reveal our bias? We're security obsessed. That's the six. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the kind of political astuteness that even the Enneagram can lead you to, to help you discern cultures and the trap of the energy they're inside of. America is a, a little ping pong game between six and three. Mm. You know the numbers? Mm -hmm. I'm, yeah, so I'm a three. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and Will's the nine. Oh, he's got the peacefulness. Yeah. The nine. <laughs> he does. That well, because when we, when we talk about the Enneagram, a lot of people say, it wasn't just like Myers-Briggs, and we were oh, like, no. Oh, and then they're like, well, why? And, and I always go back to the fact that it's been around for centuries. Yeah, well, that helps. Yeah. It's not really a psychological tool. It's a spiritual tool mm -hmm. based on, on, on observation of people and the patterns that are there. Three and nine, they work well together, yeah. even though you're opposites, you know. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but three and nine often work very well together. They often are marriages, many marriages. Well, I'm married to a three. Oh, oh you're kidding. No, I heard, that's a, I heard that's very unique. Very unique? Yeah. You must be a high-powered couple, huh? <laughs> Wow, three out of three, wow. Well, and I think you're a one. I'm a one, terrible and, one. Uh, and you know what? My, I think my oldest son's a one. Oh, and the world's hard for him. Often the oldest son or yeah. oldest daughter. Yeah. Isn't that? Yeah. See, they take on the super responsibility of the young marriage that you were when you were you were trying to do it right in your own way. Mm -hmm. And they pick that up. I got to help mom and dad do it right. Yeah. yeah he's, still, he's still like that. So he's my second. My, my daughter, I don't know what she is yet, but she's. She's not really too concerned about too many things, you know. Mm -hmm. She might be like Will's. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I'm just teasing. 
potentially. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so we thank you for introducing us to the Enneagram because it's really been it's a an powerful amazing tool. tool. Yeah, really Richard, is. it was really quite powerful because we had this big group meeting where we're all, and we had a woman come in and administer the test to us and oh. share about each of the different numbers. And people of our team who we've never heard share on that level of their experience and how they relate to the world. I mean, for me at least, that was incredibly powerful. It is. It opened yeah. up this yes. this world of the self that they didn't That's even right. know how to get access to. Particularly for men who mm -hmm. don't like to talk about spiritual things. Right. But every one of us likes self knowledge. Mm -hmm. Why do I do the things I do? You know. Mm -hmm. And when they when it starts ringing true, oh my God, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> well, nines are my favorite type. Paul working in the next office, he's a nine. You, oh my uh, gosh, Bob's gonna love hearing that. <laughs> yeah. Well, because they don't let things get out of proportion. You know, mm -hmm. they keep it simple and keep it ordinary and keep it calm and. Uh, children, if you marry, you're not married yet, I guess. Huh? I'm getting married in under a month. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> well, your children will love you because <laughs> a nine parent, your calmness and your peacefulness, your non-overreactivity mm -hmm. just gives a little kid so much space to move around in. Do you understand? Mm -hmm. you know, every child who has a nine parent just loves it. Last winter, Richard was invited to be a guest on Oprah Winfrey's Super Soul Sunday, where he shared about his personal contemplative practice and how he communes with God. For more than 40 years, he's taught seekers around the globe. Renowned author and theologian, Father Richard Rohr, a much sought after speaker who's traveled the world, he continues to inspire readers with timeless wisdom through his writing, including his book, Immortal Diamond. She was reading Immortal Diamond, mm -hmm. which ironically is one of my heavier and more Christian books, you know. And she does her homework. When I was there, I saw her copy all highlighted, marked up arrows, and you know, she just paged to ask me questions about this or that. She really deserves her reputation. We hit it off personally before we were on camera. She didn't want to meet me until <clears throat> uh, she met me. So we, we're, I'm in her beautiful castle mansion <laughs> in Santa Barbara, in her front yard, which was acres and acres and acres. And uh, I come walking across the bridge, and they say, she will meet you at the middle of the bridge. And she comes running to me, her big breast just bouncing. <laughs> Father Richard, Father Richard. <laughs> I mean, but it was so authentic. It was yeah. so sincere, so real. <laughs> so I really liked her, and I could tell she liked me. We just connected. You know, and she told me, she says, you know, I was a preacher girl. She is still Christian. Mm. She just says, I have to find a, a sort of neutral, universal language mm. on, on TV. But in her heart of hearts, she's a believer, very much so. Mm. So we, we liked one another. And she's had me back for dinner since then, you know, with a, with a group of pastors. It was wonderful. There's an interesting concept here. I'm looking at this. Um, sculpture you have on your wall behind here and it's Jesus reaching down from the cross. What's oh, that his hand? That was carved in the Philippines and it's supposed to be that uh, passage in John's Gospel and bowing his head he gave up his spirit. Hmm. It was hand carved there, yeah. And, uh, it's, and I think it's somewhat beautifully related to our last question is you talk a lot about the concept of heaven being on earth and mm. coming to earth and not necessarily this this uh, other place that we're trying to get to. Get to, yes, later. Can you explain or dig into that a little bit. And what is, I think that's a beautiful illustration of that. 
Yeah, it really is, offering the spirits in this world. You know, again, you can only see what you're told to pay attention to. The gospel for you and for me too, we pre-Vatican II Catholics were the same way. Basically, the great salvation epic of the Christ coming forth from the Father mm -hmm. to take us back with him into the bosom of the Father, almost as if the early fathers of the church said, we're the fourth person of the Blessed Trinity. Now here, I'd rather have you take a picture of this. This is my favorite piece of religious art. It's Rublev's icon. It still hangs the original in Moscow. But now we know, see this little box there? Yes. We're going to put these out with my new book. There was a mirror glued there. There's no example of an icon ever having a mirror glued onto it. But it's illustrating what I'm just saying, that the observer was invited to be the fourth person at the table. Isn't that brilliant? Wow. Yeah. yeah. And to, to live in communion with the Holy Trinity. It wasn't this later reward, punishment, bad people are going to hell and good. It was, for me, and I hope this doesn't sound heretical, it, this is what the early fathers of the church believed. Salvation was not a question of if, it was a question of when. When. Now, admittedly, most people in this world don't get it. They remain hateful and, and power hungry and money hungry and all the rest. And it is a waste of time because you're, you're not living in your true self, you understand. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was once you hear that larger mystical understanding of what the gospel is really saying, you'll, you'll find plenty of scriptures that point, right? And you say, how could I have ever read it any other way? Hmm. But mostly our notion of hell, which appealed to the lowest level of human motivation, fear. Fear of God being the worst of all. When you're trained to be afraid of God, you've got a toxic universe, do you understand? If the one who's in charge of all this thing is making a list, checking her twice, just waiting to catch you, you're not happy. And that's, I think that explains a lot of angry and unhappy Christians. They want to think they love God, but they don't. They're afraid of Him, and it's not their fault. I'm not trying to put them down by saying that. So. You know, you probably studied a bit of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old mm -hmm. Testament. All the covenants, they're through Noah, or through Abraham, or through David, but they're always formed with the people. Mm -hmm. They're social concepts. God is making a covenant with history, with society, with the universe, with, do you understand, not with the individual. And I would say the single biggest Achilles heel of the Protestant period, the last 500 years, is it the the descent into almost total individualism, mm -hmm. where it's all just about you going to heaven apart from me and apart from him, you going to heaven apart from me. Mm -hmm. It's just the dead end of the gospel. It's there's no hope for history. They, the, I mean, the great late great planet Earth and these kind of books, they love to talk about Armageddon and apocalypse. <laughs> Jesus is always a wedding banquet, you know. <laughs> It's wedding, except for Matthew 25, and I can explain why I think he says that. But Jesus, how many parables of wedding banquets? You're going to have one soon. No? Yeah. But this is the parable of the end of time, you know? Yeah. And we chose to concentrate. If you want to get people's attention, give them a, a horror story, a fear-based story, mm -hmm. a threat. It works. And now, I don't know if you've heard my recent tapes, but our talks because I just learned this in January from one of our students who's a neuroscientist. Mm 
Hmm. And he pointed out, you'll love this, this so validates contemplation, that negative, fearful, um, angry thoughts are like Velcro. Hmm. Your, your brain just grabs onto them and, and obsesses with them. Positive, loving, grateful thoughts are like Teflon. <laughs> they just slide up. Like you've got to know that you've got to savor a positive, grateful, isn't that tree beautiful? You've got to consciously enjoy that tree for a minimum of 15 seconds or it won't imprint on your brain. Wow. Whereas negative, got it. And that's why people can obsess about someone who did them wrong five years ago and still keep rehashing it, replaying it. Mm. This is what the early mystics and contemplatives recognized, that i got to practice letting go of all that crap. Because mm -hmm. it takes over by the time you're my age. If you don't, <laughs> you know, if you don't develop a practice while you're young, it just does. Because mm. as you're middle age, uh, the life hurts just sort of accumulate when each of your kids doesn't turn out exactly as you had hoped you know you'll yeah. it'll, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh so just hold on to that mm -hmm. positive is like teflon negative is like velcro isn't that amazing yeah it's funny you say that one of the um people we interviewed before, right before you is uh his name is mike Irwin, and he started the positivity project oh, and it's a study okay. of positive psychology oh for heaven's sake because yeah. all these years in psychology we've been focused but on what hasn't worked the deviant the that sort problem of thing. that's and right like some it, as i think as early or as late as the early 90s we started just saying why do we not start why don't we start studying the things that work yes beautiful and then i'm like ah that makes so much more sense right. and see again i see everything theologically but we did the same thing with this notion of original sin which we we baptized them to wash away original sin you created an atonement theory where jesus needed to shed blood before god could love his own creation which is absurd theology that God, you wouldn't naturally love your four children, of course. Yeah. You don't need to someone pay you a price before yeah. you love your children. It's horrible theology. And and we're, we're both trapped in different ways by beginning with a problem. Mm. That history started with a problem. Whereas if you really look at Genesis, four or five times in a row, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was very good, right? You know? Right there in the first chapter of Genesis. So we start with original blessing, not with original sin. Mm. But when you start with the only reason Jesus came was to pay the price for our sinfulness. Well, that leaves you as foundationally a sinner. You know? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. that, that, no, your foundation is you're a child of God. Now, that's what the mystic discovers, that the, the final ground is good. Yes, there's a fly in the ointment. That's certainly true. And we can't deny the fly in the ointment. But you can't start with the fly in the ointment and think that the whole meaning of the Bible is to resolve the fly in the ointment. You know, so you've got mm -hmm. to start with, no, it was very good. And God loved his creation from the moment of the Big Bang infinitely and unconditionally and that's the only way god loves mm. oh that changes everything but mm -hmm. see you can only do that with a trinitarian god mm. there's a water wheel of love in one direction always flowing whereas when you, you make jesus the cosmic problem solver and i love jesus and i love the cross you see 
But this is more Jesus' identification with human suffering, not solving a problem so God can love us. Do you understand? Mm. Can you feel the difference? Yeah. God already loves you. That's crucial. Mm. We want to thank Richard and the Center for Action and Contemplation for giving us a few moments of his valuable time. And thank you for creating the space to listen to this conversation. We hope that it gave you things to consider, wrestle with, and celebrate. Also, make sure you keep an eye out for Richard's new book, The Divine Dance. As he says in his own words, Well, it's going to be called The Divine Dance. The Divine Dance. You know, that was the first word used by the early fathers. Perichoresis in Greek means a circle dance. Mm-hmm. And they said, God is like a circle dance. See, that was all lost. Wills, I can't believe we had a few minutes with one of our favorite authors, Father Rohr. It was unbelievable. So how do you feel uh, all these weeks after interviewing him? Have you reflected all at our time with him? Yeah, it's one of those um, conversations that you find yourself going back to um, and remembering new things. I listened to this audio uh, probably a couple dozen times now, and um, it just seems that I'm always uncovering something new. So um, that's that's the gift of Richard Rohr, I think. Yeah, we can't encourage you all um, enough to uh, check out Richard's writings and and the center. Uh, But what also is interesting is our sponsor for today's episode, Sleeping at Last, the founder of Sleeping at Last is Ryan O'Neill. And he actually was just with Richard, I think, um, a few months ago. And so it's kind of crazy that he's also the composer of uh, the music for this episode and most of our other episodes, too. That's right. And you can find Ryan's music at sleepingatlast.com. Uh, but he's also on iTunes, um, Apple Music, as well as Spotify. Thank you, Ryan, for just being such an amazing friend and uh, contributor to this. And for those of you who don't know Ryan or who we're talking about, check out the first episode of season one, and you get to meet Ryan on that podcast. We also want to give a big thank you to Rule 29 for giving us the space and the resources to create this show. Please find us on Twitter at Design of Podcasts, and don't forget that we're now on Google Play. And also a huge thank to Steve Wick, our audio engineer. You know, Justin, he's like those moments where you're just by yourself and you listen to that still small voice telling you you can do it and you're not doing a terrible job. Just do it! That's beautiful. We're having a ton of fun this season and can't wait to bring you more episodes in the coming weeks. We'll see you soon.